The Academic Podcast Agency. Well, after spending this time in New Orleans on the eve of our presidential election, how do you feel that we are equipped to deal with this aftermath? Um, I am divided in my response as I feel that it would be potentially quite good for my radio documentary <laughs> if Trump was elected, as then I've got something to talk about. Uh, but I feel uh, universally it would be a travesty for international relations. On the 8th of November 2016, I was in New Orleans when the USA democratically elected their 45th president-elect. Now, the Glass Bead Game podcast has never really pretended to be politically impartial. Now, many subjects, regular listeners will be aware that we do swing a little to the left. However, whatever your politics regarding the Trump election, it seems fair to say that many people were surprised by the result. And the audio you're listening to is of an evening that started in high spirits with a sense of entertainment, which slowly evolved into a reality which upset a lot of people. Let's hear what this goddamn dumbass has to say. Oh my god. This is not supposed to happen. I just received a call from Secretary Clinton. Oh my Shut the fuck up talking about Hillary. I'm reaching out to you. No, this is a bad day for America. Not I'm terrified of tomorrow. Oh my god, I've gotten to know our country so well, you don't know anything. Following the election night, thousands of demonstrators took to the streets of multiple U.S. cities to express their anger about what had happened. But what does it mean when a group of people assemble to protest for or against something that they all believe in? Can parading down a street meaningfully affect social change? And is that even the objective for those that are inspired to take part? And finally, how should a democratic society understand a crowd of impassioned people challenging the very system that chooses who is eligible to govern us. The time through which we are now passing is of exceptional character. This is... The Glass Bead Game. The Glass Bead Game. My dear friends... Inform, investigate, and engage. popular representations and in academia, crowd events often got a very bad press. 
are often characterised as out of control because it's imagined that when people form part of crowds, there is a, a loss of self or identity and therefore a loss of control. I'm Dr John Drury. I'm a reader in social psychology at the University of Sussex. Social change often involves crowds, but most crowds have nothing to do with social change. Right? Some crowds are conservative, many crowds are mundane, and many crowds don't have a shared identity because they're simply people who are co-present and they're not necessarily a crowd with a shared identity. They might become one, and your crowds of shoppers on a Saturday aren't a crowd with a sense of shared identity. They might become one under certain conditions, but they're not. They're essentially individuals who see themselves as individuals who are simply together in the same place. And we call those physical crowds because they're simply co-present individuals. So the crowds I'm talking about in protests where people are people have the shared identity, we call those psychological crowds. And you could say the same thing psychologically about football crowds, um, crowds at music events, those crowds where people have a sense of us or we, not a sense of I in relation to other individuals. A blog of yours online refers to the idea that protesting is good for you. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's a bit of a provocation to say that, and I, I, I deliberately chose the, the headline to stimulate people and to sort of generate debate, because, of course, I know, having been on many protests myself, that it isn't always uh, an experience which is good for one's health, OK, because it's tiring, it can reduce your immune system being on uh, a long protest. Um, it can be dangerous. And so all those things suggest that protest isn't good for one. Um, but what I was getting at was the empowerment process that sometimes takes place. right? And um, the empowerment process means, first of all, the uh, sense of social support people get from others around them. Right? And social support in itself has been found in other research to be a pathway to increased sense of efficacy and via that to well-being. Okay? So there's research saying that support leads to well-being. Then social support then allows people to, um, to realise this identity they have. Now, the thing about people that get involved in protests and collective action and uh, movements that try to change the world, of course, is they're not powerful, right? If they were powerful, they wouldn't be doing that. If you're powerful, you don't need to be on the streets. So when they get together and they're able to put into practice their values and realise in the world their identity, that is something which, is, which changes the world because the world normally reflects back to them their powerlessness or their weakness. Powerlessness or weakness would not normally be the first thing you would associate with the demographic of largely white middle-class men and women that marched through the streets of New Orleans on the 9th of November. However, the group identity and purpose in opposition to Trump was proudly shared, even if some demonstrators wanted to express it with more drama than others. Two or three of the people marching beside me were engaged in petty acts of vandalism, whilst others in the crowd took it upon themselves to reprimand them. It struck me at this point that in fact a consensus on what any one crowd should think or should be doing is probably very difficult to arrive at spontaneously.
In the end, the disagreement was finally broken up by the discovery that somebody was demonstrating their right to the Second Amendment. In what seemed like a further attempt to galvanize those present with common purpose and identity, about 200 people arrived at Lee's Circle, a war monument bridging the old town with its new business district. How we can meet again, maybe with not so much attention, and like either online or somewhere where we're not trying to make a. Right now, this is good. This is awesome, and this is like great to show everyone our support and that they don't live in a nation of like racist, ignorant, mean people, and that there are nice people that are going to come together for them. But I think we should really like concentrate on figuring out how we're going to meet again in a more in a place with less attention where we could really organize and figure out how to make this into something that's not going to dwindle out. After the group had talked for about 60 minutes, I struck up a conversation with Brittany, who agreed to talk to me about what the Trump election and taking part in the subsequent protests meant to her and her immediate community. Um, yes, I'm Brittany. I'm 24 years old. Um, I work at a uh, gay-oriented bar in New Orleans. For Brittany, the act of protest seemed to be a way to physically identify with the label of LGBTQ, an identity that she fears will be far less acceptable in a USA presided over by Donald Trump. I went by the bar immediately after the protest, and the bar that I work at is very community-oriented. You really shouldn't talk about politics at at a bar. Everybody saw me on the news, like, protesting. Oh, they did? Yeah. On the local news? Yeah, yeah. I was on the local news. So. And what did they think? Were they proud of you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually had, like, a really great conversation with um, this one of our older um, regulars, because she actually protested in the civil rights movement and all that kind of stuff about, like, you know, how powerful and stuff it could be. How much of this is a concern for matters of the LGBT community? Oh, I mean, it's huge. I mean, everybody is pretty devastated. Um, I only know of one person in the LGBTQ community that is actually for Trump, um, which is very contradictory, but she's also, you know, from the South, comes from more misogynistic type background. White women voted more for Trump than for Hillary Clinton. And I think a lot of it stems from this perpetual misogyny. I mean, I, I remember, you know, when I was a kid being from Alabama, my dad, I told him when I was in high school that I was a feminist, and he went on a rant for about an hour and a half about how it was wrong. What did he do when you came out? Um, I mean, he, actually, he was pretty supportive, oddly enough. Um, that wasn't a big deal. Um, so he was more was more angry the idea of you being a feminist than you were being gay. Yeah. Well, I'm not gay. I'm okay, actually, I, I identify as queer. Okay, so, sure. um, which is a little bit different than, um, I mean, it's basically in lines of bisexuality, but it's a little bit more politically aligned. And does your, does your father understand the difference? No. The power of identity and the ways in which prefabricated labels can in themselves create voters forms part of the research carried out by Cynthia Weber 
and her I Am an American project. My name is Cynthia Weber. I'm Professor of International Relations at the University of Sussex. I'm a sovereignty scholar, so in international relations, so I look at how the notion of trying to give a state authority is about the crafting of a particular uh, maybe citizen or figure that can be inhabited as giving authority to the state. So how did, how did the Trump campaign in this case try to create a particular figure of the U.S. American uh, who would authorize his presidency? That authority that, that is behind sovereignty doesn't come from nowhere. It is always said to be exercised in the name of the populace or the citizenry uh, within a state. And so there's a kind of expression that was coined by an IR theorist called Richard Ashley that statecraft is mancraft. So the argument is that a particular idea of who, for example, the U.S. citizen is, is crafted to give authority to, in this case, the U.S. state in order for the U.S. state to claim its sovereignty nationally and internationally. So it's not this theoretical definition of absolute authority over a territory and a population. It's about making up who this population is so that the population themselves can identify with that figure, what he calls sovereign man, what I would maybe more generally call sovereign subjectivity, uh, as, as somebody who, who doesn't exist in real life. Um, but is, is a figure who we come to believe in and we come to understand is authorizing the, the authority of the state. On the one hand, Donald Trump would say things like, there should be no discrimination against LGBT people. And in the same breath, he would say, I'm against gay marriage. Now, being for gay marriage is not the be-all and end-all of protecting LGBT people, but it is an important issue in, in the context of the neoliberal United States. And, and to say that one is against it is very often read as discriminatory. So there was a lot of, as we know, very racist, very xenophobic, um, very misogynist language, uh, uh, you know, and activities around women. And there were also mixed signals around uh, homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia. Trump is a really difficult figure to pin down. He contradicts himself all the time. Um, and he, he, you know, he did so during the campaign. He's doing so in the aftermath of the election. You know, the division that's happening in this country is insane. It is insane. I feel like a lot of, you know, especially working class white people, they feel like they are, um, you know, things aren't the same for them anymore. So they feel more marginalized. But at the same token, like, people of color have been feeling that for a long time, you know? I mean, and... When I get on Twitter and I read that people are coming up with a hit list for people of color and calling them the N-word, you know, I mean, are we going back to Jim Crow days? Those were scary times. I mean, right where my grandparents lived, there was a lynching back in, like, 1991. So it's not really that far-fetched that this crap could happen again. But what he did was he kind of tapped into that, uh, that notion of being left behind economically by a particular segment of the U.S. population, largely male, uh, typically white, uh, former industrial laborer, 
sort of reinvigorated this notion of white male entitlement and figured it as repressed. And he was going to let he was going to make America great again on behalf of that figure. The figure of the great American has perhaps, due to Hollywood, been one of the biggest heroic archetypes of the media age. And whilst clearly the Marlboro-smoking John Wayne character may be more at home in the 20th century than in the 21st, ideas about who an American is or should be have played a large part in the pre-election rhetoric. A six-hour drive north from New Orleans, in the town of Cuba, Missouri, we interviewed a couple before the election who recognised a little bit more of themselves in Donald Trump's depiction of an American citizen. Well, my name is Bill Lang, and I've lived in this community for 40 years. It's a very open and welcoming community to outsiders. We raise cattle and owning a small business. The people that I know in this area, they feel like he's speaking to them. And he's speaking in a language and in a way that they understand. And that he's looking them in the eye just like two people would in business in this community, and they make a deal. I'm Catherine Lang. I have a law practice with five attorneys, and uh, I've lived here for 35 years. From my perspective, Donald Trump captivates people because he speaks their language. He says a lot of things that people think, but they're afraid to say out loud. The things that he says that touches our, our hearts and our conscience and our minds about making this country great again, about being able to protect our constitutional rights, not have your guns taken away. Uh, that, that's a big issue here for people. A lot of hunters, a lot of people, gun owners here, a lot of NRA members. Although Bill and Catherine Lang don't necessarily feel the need to take to the streets, there is an understanding that a vote for Trump is still a way of protesting, but through the democratic process. In many ways, a vote for Donald Trump is a protest vote. I believe that people are tired of the status quo. I think Donald Trump represents a dramatic change to the current political environment. You may recall that over eight years ago, we had a candidate who promised change. Right now, we've got the worst of the worst as a leader. We've got a man that's been on the apology tour since the day he took office, gone to other nations and, and apologized for America being America. This is a man who's not proud to be an American himself. I mean, he's, if anything, he seems ashamed. And, and that's not the way we feel. We're proud to be Americans. We love being here. We're, I'm grateful I was born in this country. I'm grateful that my ancestors immigrated here. Most Americans just want to be able to live in America in a free society, take care of their own, take care of themselves, you know, be there to help other countries when they need it, but take care of our needs first and our people first. Understanding that a right to protest against your government is a crucial part of what makes America great, Bill and Catherine seem to agree that protest is indeed an essential part of any functioning democracy. I think we, America's learned a lesson that if the world doesn't 
want us to help them. We don't need to help them. People want to live in, uh, under rulers, dictators who want to kill them because they don't believe in their religion, because they protest their government and they're willing. They don't want us to come and liberate them, then fine, we won't do it. That's great with me. This does, however, imply that there is a value judgment to be made about whether a protest is good or bad, lawful or illegal. One problem with assessing the legality of protest surely arises when people gather to protest against an unlawful act. Why should one group stay within the law when others are seen to have broken it? Bill and Catherine Lang live very close to Ferguson, the town in which Michael Brown was shot in 2014. They have the right to protest, but it should be in a peaceful manner. I mean, Ferguson, every time a black man is shot by a police officer, you know, we have to revert back to talking about Ferguson. That, that, that was a terrible thing to happen in, in a city so close to us. And it was unacceptable. I mean, yes, it, they, they have the right to protest. They have the right to march in the streets. They have the right to carry their signs, to chant their chants, but they don't have the right to start burning down businesses and burning uh, police cars and attacking, physically attacking other people. That's when, it, when it's no longer a lawful protest. Returning to the streets of New Orleans, it is crucial to understand this city as the spiritual and physical home of jazz music. From the wellspring of African culture that survived the brutality of slavery, the music that originated here is arguably the primary root of all African-American culture. If not always overtly political, the musical traditions of New Orleans has always embodied a resistance, a protest disguised as a parade that celebrates the beauty of the people subjugated by racism and flaunts this beauty and vitality as a symbol of enduring cultural pride. Music screams from the streets of this city with a relentless energy that is impossible to ignore. Today is the Gumbo Festival in Louis Armstrong Park, also known as Congo Square. So we are just outside of Congo Square, aren't we now? We're just yes. over the road. Across the street at the Dreamy, Dreamy Weenies restaurant on Rampart Street, which is the street where most of New Orleans' early jazz was produced. I met up with photographer and academic Freddie Hill to further understand the nuances of what is referred to as second-line culture. I am a retired college administrator and professor. I came to New Orleans in 2004. I was here one year before the flood, and after the flood, I decided I was going to stay. I have always been interested in forms of African resistance, much of my graduate work looked at African liberation movements, the civil rights movement. And so my first second line parade showed me the strength and the vitality and the creativity of, of African Americans in New Orleans. It seems significant that in this instance, taking to the streets to express identity is not framed as a critique of those with whom you don't identify. At first, I was fascinated by the eloquent sartorial styles of the various organizations. 
And then I began to ask questions. Well, why do African-American clubs invest in parading every Sunday from August, the third week in August, until the third week in June? And when I ask individuals, why, are you, why do you parade? They say, because we want to give back to the community. For example, many people will say, you know, I mask as an Indian because our community wants us to come out. We make people happy. So I want to continue to do that. and it's going to go down and then go over. Then they're going to keep going that way and then they're going to come out this way and then come out to the street. And so the street gets closed down? Or? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. Oh, they have to. They have a police escort. That costs $2,000. Which they pay for? Which the club pays for. Okay. And they pay for that every weekend, every mm-hmm. Sunday? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so that's a real gift to the community right there. <laughs> that's, you got it. You see what I'm saying? It's not about, you know, maintaining African traditions. It's about celebrating and affirming. I'm Richard Turner. Um, I'm a professor in the Department of Religious Studies and the African American Studies Program at the University of Iowa, and I love New Orleans. In the present political climate, does Second Line culture as a form of protest, does it have a place, do you think, does it have a contemporary relevance? I believe it does, particularly in this era, because Second Line culture developed through the uh, descendants of uh, people who danced in Congo Square in the 19th century. Their parents were enslaved. And it developed to say that, um, you know, that black lives matter in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century. That, that's what jazz was about, in spite of the fact that black people were dehumanized by uh, second-class citizenship. The second line has always been a statement of protest to say that, you know, that people of African descent built this country. As, as slaves. Um, they've been here since the beginning of the modern era, and that is in the Americas. They've been here since the 1500s. And they have a right to be respected as human beings and to have uh, the same citizenship rights. Second lines are very different from protests. They're, they're not, they're, they're, and they'll tell you in a minute, we're not political, okay? I used to stand back and say, what? You mean you're not political? Yeah, you're political. Every day you come out here and you say to the city, we're going to parade. You can't tell us what to do. We paid our fees and the Mardi Gras Indians. You can't tell us which way the streets go down. That is political, but they don't see it that way. They see themselves as coming out, keeping the culture alive, affirming the culture, celebrating New Orleans' rich, unique culture. You'll hear an expression every Sunday. There's nothing like this anywhere in the world. There's no place in the world that has a second-line parade every Sunday where people get out and have a good time, leave their worries at home every Sunday. 
Some people participate in Second Line culture to party, to dance. Uh, you know, they may not see it as a, as a political form of protest. But on the other hand, in the larger framework, you know, jazz and Second Line culture in New Orleans emerged as a form of uh, political protest through performance to the uh, dehumanizing practices of systemic racism in the United States. And I guess we have to keep in mind that the second line can, um, is, a, is a flexible kind of African diasporic performance form in New Orleans because on the one hand it's a performance form that's used in uh, funerals and certainly in funeral processions uh, uh, people are not overtly protesting uh, politically. But on the other hand, um, it can be used as a form of protest. It certainly was used as a form of protest right after Hurricane Katrina by both black and white citizens as a message to um, the state government and the federal government that Louisiana is still here, New Orleans is still here, and you know we need help to rebuild our city. Following Hurricane Katrina in 2005, the complete breakdown of social order, combined with the much criticized neglect from the US government, caused many New Orleanians to take to the streets in order to survive. John Jury again. I know that this isn't your area of specialization, but um, I did come across it uh, on a piece called Collective Resilience in Mass Emergencies and Disasters. And you do talk about the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. Um, the looting that went on. Yeah, well, I think when people say looting, they often mean people have got a kind of choice, right? So, yeah, maybe they have. But in many cases in, in after Hurricane Katrina... Uh, what we know to be the case is that people weren't a able to pay, right? Because the, the, the mechanisms for payment weren't operating and the alternative was to starve. When people took those goods to survive, they were doing it for their families and for their communities. So, you know, there's a way of talking about that kind of behaviour, one which kind of focuses on the technically criminal aspect to it and another which focuses on what its function is and its purpose. What's the difference between a riot and a protest? Well, it's a bit like Pride, isn't it? Gay Pride I'm talking about. I mean, I think it grew originally out of uh, a riot in New York at Stonewall Club, which was raided by police. People fought back against the police and then gay pride became a form of you know, coming on the streets and being open and it was all about protest. And now, of course, it's very commercialised and has to be, you know, the authorities welcome it, of course, don't they? Because it's a giant commercial thing. So that is why, you know, we should be careful when we, in the words we use, to talk about these kind of behaviours. The difference between a protest, a parade and a riot is perhaps not so easily defined as some people may think. The fact that groups of people that identify with each other may also be politicized by external events out of their control is capable of framing their physical presence on the streets of a city in any number of ways. After the flood, parading became a way of pulling people together. For example, the city decided to have a, a Mardi Gras celebration and some of the clubs participated in Mardi Gras, which was not part of their tradition. Um, there was also a parade to call people home. 
one of the Mardi Gras Indians, Victor Harris, Chief Fayaya, read a statement calling people to come back at every parade on St. Joseph night up until I guess around 2011 he would stand at the steps and say come home come home we need you so parades then became a part of not only demands but also bringing people together asking people to come back not only New Orleanians but also saying to the world we want you to visit New Orleans we have a unique experience for you do these events, do they actually affect, or can they actually affect political change? Can they actually change things? See, I don't know if they change things, but I do know that they raise consciousness and galvanize and create conversation about the injustice so that people who may not have seen the news and realized that... Um, public defenders didn't have any money and had to close their offices, that parade raised their awareness. So that raises consciousness. What do you think is the difference between a parade and a protest? Um, a protest consists of people who come together, um, most often spontaneously, and they are protesting to achieve certain goals, whether it's to take down the monuments because they're racist symbols, uh, to protest their displeasure with the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States. They don't know each other. They have, Very few have relationships. Sometimes they come together and they develop relationships, such as Black Lives Matter, but they are, they are organized to protest, to advocate. The social aid and pleasure clubs, parades, are created to express the members' celebration of life, community, friendship, and New Orleans culture. One of the comments that struck me over and over again is when I would ask members, well, why do you parade? Miss Freddie, I parade because I, we need to keep the culture alive. Well, when I see the people coming out and cheering and clapping and ooh and aahing at us and our suits, recognizing us as members of their families and their communities, that makes me feel good. And I know that I'm making them feel happy. A sense of, I am making people happy. I am maintaining the culture. We're not going to let anybody come and take this away. What do you imagine the future of, of this tradition will be? Where does this go to? As we walk into a digitalized age um, with a, now a Donald Trump as president, what does this look like in the next 10 years? <laughs> These clubs are going to continue because many people are part of families that have been a part of this tradition, and they bring in their friends and they bring in their cousins. So, and they also experience the desire to be out there to demonstrate that I am a part of a city that has a rich African-American culture and nobody's going to take it away. And while I see that as a political statement, that is for them an affirmation. I love my culture and nobody's going to take it away from me. And look, Let's talk about sartorial style. They take great pride 
in how they look when they hit the street. Okay, you heard a young man saying, oh, I heard they're going to come out strong. So there's humor and there's rich creativity, and it's expressed by different groups. Some of, some of the groups will come out looking, some of the women may come out, you know, scantily dressed. That's, that's how they feel that, that Sunday. Others will come out in rich, white leather suits with high boots, and they parade for four hours because that's how they express themselves. All right? Some of them want to just say, look, I want everybody in New Orleans to know that I got the best dancing feet in this city. Okay? I think for me, um, as a scholar, I've learned that you have to allow participants to tell you what they're doing and accept that and don't try to make it anything other than what they say it is. Images of crowds can help convey that the ideas they represent are feasible and possible. The term no platform has lost its original meaning, but it, what it used to mean was that fascists weren't uh, allowed to mobilise, right? And the reason for that is, if you see a um, fascist able to move about at will in the streets, march down a street, right, that tells you those who are potentially sympathetic to those views that that fascist organisation has the capacity to act, right? right? Now, if you see that fascist group being chased away and looking stupid and looking humiliated, it tells you, on the contrary, that that ideology is not capable of organising itself to achieve power, right? So even though most people don't join in with these crowd events, the images they can convey can um, help propel certain political ideologies and turn them into give them power. I read something recently by a colleague of mine who analysed the choreography of the Trump rallies and it was quite interesting the way the crowd there sort of embodied the values and that was quite disciplined. I and mean, if you look closely behind the scenes about what was going on at those rallies, there were people actually encouraging others to present this, this unified view. Sort of soundscape in a way, the way they all shouted out Trump, Trump, Trump when he when he appeared and so on, and encouraged each other to do so to create this this image of unity and, and power, and that was quite a deliberate thing. It was quite theatrical. You mean but, by uh, you think that was a deliberate instigation by the Trump people? Yeah, for... that was going on. Yeah, yeah. But see, what's interesting about that then is it then tells those people who see this that there is this unified, powerful force. And that's the thing about rallies. So most people don't attend rallies, OK, these days, political rallies, but because everything's televised, then it can tell you something about the strength of feeling and the consensus, or supposed consensus, uh, amongst your uh, neighbours. Um, and so, therefore, it's quite important for those trying to use rallies to get power or maintain power to, um, to choreograph them. I mean, in everyday life, the streets aren't the place where a pedestrian can feel relaxed. But if you're in a big enough crowd, you take over the streets, right? And that actually feels quite good, and people enjoy that, because that's the basic feature, isn't it, of being on a, on a march, that you take over the streets and you go where you want. But I wonder, with crowd behaviour mm. and a lot of the things that we've talked about, yeah. whether this is something which is... Can, can be considered essentially human. Yeah, there is something that makes us human, like the capacity to understand oneself as in a, in a group, which is based on the, the cognitive ability to categorise things. 
I mean, I think it's essentially human to have an identity, right? Because I think, you know, people haven't got an identity. That's the kind of definition of a mental disorder, probably, isn't it? I think there's a distinction between the process and the content, right? So the process part is the kind of universal, the generic, if you like, okay? So the process part means, well, identity itself, which means who we include with us as part of our group, that the group has boundaries, that some people are excluded, some people are included. The sense of what's possible, right? So there's always a sense of what we can do or what we can't do, and the sense of what's appropriate. So there's norms, okay? So all those things make up identity in, in the sense I've been talking about it, collective identity. All, all groups throughout history will have those. What differs and what's historically variable is the content. You know, the idea of revolution only became a conscious thing at certain points in history. So what are our values? What are these appropriate forms of behaviour that we should be doing? What kinds of things are possible? Significantly, the mechanisms of the US electoral college system means that Donald Trump did not in fact win the popular vote. Over a million more individual US citizens voted for Hillary Clinton, suggesting at the very least that 2017 is likely to see a lot more people take to the streets in protest and resistance. How this new presidency and those that will protest against it will affect the rest of the world remains to be seen. Further information about all who featured in this episode can be found at www.theglassbeegame.co.uk. And whilst you're there, why not subscribe for free at the top of the site to ensure that you get next month's episode, which will be a look at the ethics surrounding development in modern-day Kenya. Your presenter for this episode has been Will Hood, and the series producer is Rob Alexander. The Glass Bead Game has been brought to you by the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex and is an Animal Monday production. <laughs>